Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. He did want me to let you know that he is going to be back next week, uh, Thanksgiving weekend. So take that into consideration when you're eating your turkey. However stuffed you get, you're going to have to roll on in here to continue the Sermon on the Mount series. Um, we've been in a, a series called The Good Life, um, looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And uh, the past few weeks, we've seen Jesus taking these commands against adultery and murder and driving them down deeper to the heart level. And we've seen that a lot of damage can be done before we ever cross those lines. Because the real problem is, is inside. So our focus has been on all the little things in our lives that lead up to those big moral failures. But what happens when you do cross the line? If the problem is at the heart level, how do you change? I've had a number of conversations this, just this week. What happens when I have crossed that line? When I let all these ugly things creep into my heart, I can't get any traction, how can my heart be pure again? How many times have you asked that question, how do I even get back from this point. Well, whatever line it is that you may have crossed, uh, if Jesus' focus is at the heart level, that's where we need to focus as well. So I've used this illustration before, but there's, a, there's just a fascinating legend of how an Eskimo kills a wolf. And the story goes that the Eskimo takes the blade of his knife and he goes and he dips it into animal blood and he lets it freeze, so it creates this thin coat of blood around the knife. And he does it again and again, lets it freeze over and over until eventually the blade is completely concealed by this thick layer of frozen blood. And he goes out and he, he sets it in the ground and waits for the wolf. And he, the wolf is following his scent uh, to the source of the blood, and when he finds the blood, he, he, he starts to taste it, begins to lick it. And recognizing the fresh, frozen blood, he begins to lick faster, more and more vigorously, until eventually the edge of the blade is, is bare. But his, his uh, craving for the blood becomes so strong, and his tongue becomes so numb that he doesn't recognize the razor-sharp sting of the blade nor does he recognize the moment when his insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. Now, as gruesome as, as that is, at any point during that night, that wolf could have turned away and his life would have been spared. He could have turned away. There were numerous points in the night he could have, but instead, He's consumed by his own lust. 
And we've seen this play out over and over again in the lives of, uh, uh, you know, celebrity scandals, the Me Too movement, the influential pastors who have fallen, or even in our own failures and shortcomings. We know that it's true. We are the wolf. We are the wolf. And what seems like a harmless taste, even something that starts out good, can so often eventually become a death sentence as it consumes us in our thoughts. And I know sin is not a popular topic. This is something that we like to ignore, but I think that's exactly why we need to hear it today. Because even the smallest taste when left unchecked, when you don't repent, when you don't turn away from it, even the smallest taste can turn into something that devastates your life. So for those struggling because you think you're too far gone, stick with me. For those who feel they can get no traction and have no hope, I want you to know you're not too far gone. You can have a pure heart again. You can feel that intimacy with God again. And to show you this, I'm going to take you to the greatest king of Israel, David, and uh, who I'm willing to bet has messed up more than any of us in this room. Jesus has been talking in the Sermon on the Mount about adultery and murder. David's done both. But rather than take us to the story itself, I want to take you to Psalm 51. Because this is an emotionally charged prayer of David right after the prophet Nathan exposes his sin of adultery and murder. And somehow, somehow David is still considered a man after God's own heart. Somehow he is still remembered in that way after all this because God does restore. The way Nathan exposes him is brilliant. It's so brilliant. I love how he does this because he comes into the throne room and he starts telling David this story of a rich man who had herds and herds of sheep more than he could ever want and a poor man who's got one precious lamb, just one. It says that, you know, he, he, he it plays with his kids and, uh, you know, he feeds it from his cup. This is a precious lamb. Well, the rich man has a visitor from out of town and rather than take from his own massive herd, he decides to take the poor man's lamb, slaughter it to feed his guest. So Nathan's got David hooked, right? David starts fuming. He, he, he starts to say, this man deserves to die. And it's right when Nathan flips the script on him and says, you are that man. You're the one. You are the one who took this man's wife and then took his life. So that's the, the context of this prayer that sets it up. And as we open it up, we're going to follow David through this process of grief-stricken repentance over his sin. Through this process of joyful restoration. All for the sake of a relationship with God. Okay, so if you're following along, there's your roadmap from repentance to restoration, all for the sake of relationship. 
Go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 51. Our passage opens up with the words of a broken and desperate man. He says, have mercy. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your unfailing love. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. The first thing I want you to notice here is what David's appealing to. He may be king, but he's not appealing to any royal prerogative. He's not asking for forgiveness because he thinks he deserves it. He's asking for forgiveness based on who God is, his loyal, unfailing love and compassion. And everything in the psalm rides on this. Everything here rides on who God is, his character. And the whole psalm, as David pours out his heart, it all becomes a contrast between God's holiness and David's sinfulness. He not only sees the utter holiness of God, but he's coming face to face with the reality, the depth of his own sinfulness and the effects that it's caused. And it's it's in this contrast in verse 3. He says, for I know, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. It's consuming him. It's eating away at his peace. You know that feeling when it's just, it, it, you cannot get the guilt off your mind. It's just there. It's just consuming you. Or that feeling where you've just been found out. I, I had a, had a, a, a classmate, this happened to a few years ago. We were in a, um, a Hebrew class and we were translating the book of Ruth from, from Hebrew into English. And my professor steps out for a moment and barely a moment had passed. We hear this recording coming from the back of the room. We realize very quickly it's an audio Bible and that it's in the book of Ruth where we're translating. So the whole class whips around and sees him frantically trying to get it to stop on his phone. He had apparently been uh, trying to read the translation and accidentally triggered the audio Bible on there. And in a moment, everybody knew. You know that feeling when the air just, just sucks out of the room? It gets really thin. Today, though, what are you hiding or justifying or excusing? What's one thing that would suck the air right out of the room right now if we all knew in an instant? If right now Siri glitched on your phone and started reading your browsing history from last night, would you feel exposed? If these screens started playing, uh, just replaying your thoughts of lust and anger from the week, would you feel exposed? Would it suck the air out of the room? I remember growing up, my mom always coming into my room, especially in high school. This happened too much in high school. She would come into my room, and you know know when they get that tone, and, and they just say, is there something you need to tell me? 
And I'm thinking, which one? Which thing? <laughs> I don't want to incriminate myself further. Which thing is she talking about? Look, if we all knew each other's sins, we would be a mess. We would be a mess. Well, Nathan has thrown David's sin right out there in the throne room floor. It's right out there in the open. It's ever before him, David says. But it took Nathan pointing it out to get there, right? We let these big and small sins pass all the time because we don't realize the gravity of them. We don't see the, the deeper heart issue. Like the, like the wolf, one lick of the blade at a time does not seem fatal. So we let it pass. But true repentance begins when we are faced with this contrast of the utter holiness of God and the depth of our own sinfulness. That's where it starts. If that contrast is not in view, true repentance will elude you. It's in that contrast that David says something in verse 4 that is completely startling. He's, he's talking to God. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, wait a minute. How can he say this? How can David say this? He committed adultery. He took this woman away from her husband. He tried to cover it up. And then when the cover-up didn't work, he had the husband killed. On top of all of this, David's infant son is going to die as a consequence of this sin. How in the world can he say that this sin is against God alone? It's because in view of God's holiness, all sin is an affront against a holy, just, righteous God. All of it. We sin because we fail to see. We fail to regard God as holy. And then we don't repent because we fail to see ourselves as truly sinful, don't we? Hiding and excusing and justifying but David sees both, God's holiness and his own sinfulness. And so what he does, he starts to stretch out this contrast even further in verses 5 and 6. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He's saying, I sin because I'm a sinner. Go figure. We're going we're gonna to keep sinning. We're going to keep falling short. It's part of being human, but the key is to, the key is to uh, step into these rhythms of repentance along the way, this heartbeat of repentance. So he says, he, he recognizes his sinfulness, but then he looks at what God wants for him, this goal that God has in mind in verse 6. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. He says, in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. The hidden part, where no one's looking. What if that were clean? What if that were clean and you had nothing to hide? 
No fear of the air getting sucked out of the room for you. That's what God wants for us. And it's what David wants here. So he pleads with God in verse 7, purify me, wash me. He says in verse 9, uh, he says, hide your face from my sins. He's, he's asking God, instead of hiding your face from me, hide your face from my sins. Tear down these walls that I've put up between us. See, David here, he's pursuing purity, but not for its own sake. He's pursuing purity for the sake of God's presence. When we pursue purity for its own sake, you know, how much of us grew up in this, this purity culture? The problem with purity culture was that it only, it, it sought purity for its own sake. David is seeking purity for the sake of God's presence. That's what he wants more than anything else. That's what repentance is at its core. It's a pursuit of purity for the sake of God's presence. David lost this close intimacy with God that he had known, and he wants it back. Uh, this, there's this Russian movie that I really like called Stalker. Um, I had read about it in a, in a book. Um, it plays out this idea that really I think the big question today is, is that what you want? Is God it for you? I think the most haunting question that we could ask ourselves, has haunted me, is do I love what I think I love? Do I love what I think I love? And it plays out in this movie. I, I read about it in a book, had to get the movie. Um, I was just fascinated by it. Um, but they, uh, it, it takes these, these three characters who go on a journey together. They don't use each other's real names, so they call each other uh, professor, writer, and stalker. And a stalker is just somebody in their world who is a trained guide to take them into this place, this mysterious place called the zone. It's like the aftermath of Chernobyl. Just a mysterious, dangerous place to go. So you don't go in without a stalker. And in the zone, there's a place that they just call the room. Because they're very creative in how they name. They just call it the room. And this room, when you walk into it, it gives you whatever your heart most desires. You get exactly whatever it is that you really want. But the catch is, the room is the one who knows what you really want. Once they get there, once they get right to the threshold, the precipice of the most important moment of their life, they get cold feet and they can't go in because it dawns on them. What if I don't know what I want? That's for the room to decide. You don't necessarily get what you think you wish for because the room knows your deepest longings. And so people would walk into this room trying to um, bring back deceased loved ones and only come back with more cash because that's all they really wanted. So they wonder again, right here at the threshold, they wonder, what if I don't love what I think I love? One author says, 
Not many people can confront the truth about themselves. If they did, they would run a mile, would take an immediate and profound dislike to the person in whose skin they'd learned to sit quite tolerably all these years. And then he says, your deepest desire is the one manifested by your daily life and habits. That's what reveals what you really love. Sin, if it's a symptom of a deeper heart problem, it's revealing what's really there. And just like when Jesus said that good fruit comes out of a good tree, your actions are revealing what's in your heart. So he says your deepest desire is the one manifested by your daily life and habits. So could you walk into the room? Based on your daily life and habits, are you confident enough that you love what you think you love? David knows what he wants. And he's come to the end of himself, and he just wants to be close to God again. And here's the beauty about this process, is that God does not just leave him in a puddle on the ground, like, you're forgiven, just go do what you're going to do. He doesn't leave him there in a puddle. He takes him from this grief-stricken repentance and moves him into this process of joyful restoration. Remember our roadmap. God's moving him from repentance to restoration. So David cries out in verse 8. He says, make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. He knows that turning brokenness into joy is something only God can do. It's something only God can do. And remember, not because we deserve it, but because of who God is. Because of his loyal, unfailing love and compassion, that's what everything in this is based on. And that's why in verse 10, David uses this word, create, to say, create in me a clean heart. This word, create, the, the specific Hebrew word is used exclusively for God's creative action in the Old Testament. It's not used for anyone else. It's as if David is saying, I need the God who breathed life into the dust to breathe life into me once again. That's what I need. Life with God. That's what this is about. Not only removing sin, we're talking about the most intimate relationship that we were created to have. So David says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. I want you to notice David asks in verse 11, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. I imagine he had to be having some flashbacks at this point because Saul was the king before him. And God rejected Saul as king and removed his Holy Spirit from him. 
So David knows in this moment the consequences of his actions. He was there. He knew when it happened. But here is, this, is, this next point is so important to get. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon people at specific times for specific acts of service. It was a temporary phenomenon. For us in the New Testament, as Christians, the New Testament says that we get the Holy Spirit as a seal and a down payment of our salvation and our inheritance. What was temporary for David is now a permanent thing at the moment of salvation. So we cannot lose the Holy Spirit in the same way David's talking about. But here's where it's similar. When we sin and we don't repent, we still grieve the loss of God's felt presence, that nearness with him. Repentance, we said, is a, it's a pursuit of purity for the sake of God's presence. It all depends on his loyal, unfailing love. Well, in verse 18, the psalm takes a little bit of a shift. It, it mentions Mount Zion, this mount in their, in their city. And it, it, he, he asked to build the walls of Jerusalem as if they were looking out later after they had been in, in exile and brought back and looking out of these walls, the result of their sin, these walls broken down, And starting to see a clear shift from the individual impact of sin to its corporate reality. We said in here, we said, hey, all sin is an affront against a holy, just, righteous God. But it ripples out and it impacts the entire community, leaves its walls broken down and vulnerable and open to attack. You may remember a few years ago, there was a website called Ashley Madison that offered the allure of totally private affairs. Millions of people signed up to this website whose slogan was literally, life short, have an affair. And if you remember, there was a data breach, because there's always a data breach. There was a data breach and millions of people had the, had the air sucked out of the room in an instant. Millions. They thought they were hiding it. They thought they were justifying. They were excusing it. And in a moment, it was all out there. One of these men, his name was John Gibson. He was a seminary professor. He was a pastor. He was a father. He was a husband. And when it came out, he could not bear the exposure, and he took his life. It was another casualty of someone who did not learn these rhythms of repentance along the way. Just hiding and excusing and justifying and never really getting there. Never really seeing this contrast between how holy God really is and how sinful I really am in the depths of my, of my heart. 
But don't make the mistake of thinking that he was worse than any of us because he was one of us. To, to uh, appropriate the words of the prophet Nathan, you are that man. When, uh, you, you know, you, you may not think it'll happen to you, but um, when, you, when you start going down that rabbit trail online of images that may not even be pornographic yet, you're taking a step. It's a symptom of the heart. You are that man. When, when, when you manipulate, Seek power, fudge numbers, get a little too friendly with someone, and it all seems harmless. It's revealing something at the heart level. You are that man. You are that woman. Listen, I am that man. Not one of us, not one of us is far from a great moral failure. It's always a few steps away. Not one of us is exempt. That's why the psalm is here. That's why it exists in your Bible, is to call you to repentance now. To call you to repentance now. Moving through this process of repentance into restoration, all for the sake of that relationship. I'm going to close, but I want to say something about that relationship. Whatever God is convicting you of in your heart right now, and there should, there should be something for every one of us, I want you to know this. You are not too far gone. You're not too far gone. If, if God, if you are sitting here today and the Holy Spirit is convicting you of something and speaking to your heart, you are not too far gone. If David can come back and be considered a man after God's own heart, you are not too far gone. If you believe that, you may be asking yourself right now, what do I do then? What do I do? If you've committed adultery, for example, you tend to think in terms of how you can earn your way back. And don't get me wrong, you will have to earn back the trust of your spouse. It's going to have to happen, for sure. But God is not calling you to earn your way back to him. You cannot do that. Only the one who can create Listen to verse 16. David says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Boy, would I. If I have something I can do to make it right again, you better believe I want to get in there and earn my way back. But he says, God doesn't delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. You can't do anything to earn your way back, but you can humble yourself before the one who will create in you a clean heart once again. You are not too far gone.
If you're in here and you don't know Jesus, this is the first step. You repent and you turn to him. You tell him you want him to rule your life. He died so you could have life with him. And if you are a Christian in here, please understand I am not talking about losing your salvation. I'm also not talking about anything you would have to do to keep it. I'm talking about an intimate relationship with Christ, a pure heart. Do you want that? Based on your daily life and habits, could you walk into that room? Do you love what you think you love? If you haven't been putting Jesus first, now is the time to repent. We're going to give you a moment to do that now. And just ask God to, to search your heart, the parts that you have not given over completely to him. And I love you guys. I hope, I hope you know that. I hope you hear that today. I hope you hear God saying how much he loves you and how much he wants that relationship. I hope you carry that question into the week. Do I love what I think I love? I want to encourage you, if you need more time to pray after this, we will have people in the corners every week. And I, I really want to encourage you, whatever it is that God laid on your heart to confess, find someone else that you can tell. Do not let it be hidden or justified or excused anymore. Let someone else know so that it can be brought to the light. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you. I thank you for your forgiveness and your love and your grace toward us. God, I thank you that even though we have nothing that we can bring, God, that there's no sacrifice we can make to earn anything back, that you have created a way and that you would teach us these rhythms of repentance along the way, Lord. Thank you for your love and your grace, Lord. We pray that you would send us out here free and enjoy. In Jesus' name, amen.